0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. Before we introduce today's podcast or guest, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review. It costs nothing, but it helps share news of the podcast and guests I feature, with others interested within the paranormal. It's a simple and easy way to help the podcast continue to grow and be a space for people to chat and come together. If you haven't already found us on the Haunted History Chronicles website, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, You can find links to all social media pages in any of the notes for an episode. Come and join us to get involved and gain access to additional blogs, news and updates. And now, let's get started introducing today's episode. Joining me on the podcast today is Professor Irving Finkel a British philologist, or someone who studies the history of languages. Professor Finkel is also an Assyriologist, someone who specialises in the archaeological, historical, cultural and linguistic study of Assyria and the rest of ancient Mesopotamia. He is the assistant keeper of ancient Mesopotamian script, languages and cultures in the Department of the Middle East in the British Museum, where he specialises in cuneiform inscriptions on tablets of clay. From ancient Mesopotamia. In his book, The First Ghosts, a rich history of ancient ghosts and ghost stories from the British Museum Curator, Irving Finkel has embarked upon an ancient ghost hunt, scouring these tablets to unlock the secrets of the Sumerians, Babylonians, and Assyrians to breathe new life into the first ghost stories ever written. In The First Ghosts, he uncovers an extraordinarily rich seam of ancient spirit wisdom which has remained hidden for nearly 4,000 years, covering practical details of how to live with ghosts, how to get rid of them and bring them back, and how to avoid becoming one, as well as exploring more philosophical questions. What are ghosts? Why does the idea of them remain so powerful despite the lack of concrete evidence? And what do they tell us about being human? There are few things more in common across cultures than the belief in ghosts. Ghosts inhabit something of the very essence of what it is to be human. Whether we personally believe or not, we are all aware of ghosts and the rich mythologies and rituals surrounding them. They have inspired, fascinated, and frightened us for centuries. Yet most of us are only familiar with the vengeful apparitions of Shakespeare or the ghostly spectres haunting the pages of 19th century Gothic literature. But their origins are much, much older. As we're about to discover, as we chat with Irving. Hello, Dr. Irving. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. I'm very excited to talk to you.
1: Oh, it's a big pleasure. I'm very glad. Very glad indeed.
0: Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about your incredible background? Um, More about yourself.
1: Well, my credible background—I don't know. Well, I come from a family I was the oldest of five children. My father was a dental surgeon and my mother a teacher. Everyone had to read books all the time. But Also, we went to the British Museum a lot when I was little, and I decided quite early on in life that I wanted to work in the British Museum. And I was very fortunate that that's what happened. So after um, university and um, PhD and stuff, um, there was a job advertised and I went to it and got it. And I've been there ever since. So I I got the job in um, 1979, September 1979. So um, I spent the whole of my adult life in the British Museum and um, we'll like to carry on doing that for another adult life on the end of it, but we'll see what happens.
0: I'm so jealous. I just think it's an incredible place to work really and to be part of all that history is just phenomenal to me. Um, just gives me goosebumps. Sets, you know, puts the hair on the back of my neck up.
1: Yes. Very lucky. Well, I can tell you something that um, uh, I think if you do the same job, I mean, most people don't do the same job all of their lives. But if you do work in the same place for a long time, people go into kind of automatic um, gear and they don't notice what they're doing until they're at their desk, and they don't notice what they're doing until they've gone home, that sort of thing. But in fact, the working museum, the museum itself is so marvelous, and the collections are so marvelous that it never evolves into a humdrum kind of experience because there's always something you've never seen before in the cases and then there's all the excited public and um you know all the other stuff and then the actual work is very fascinating so i've had a very privileged existence um because the field i work in which is cuneiform um, ancient babylonian sumerian cuneiform is a rather recherché matter when it comes to um, careers offices at school, they don't often say, ah, well, you don't like physics or football, perhaps you should learn cuneiform and work in a museum. They don't say that very often, and there aren't many jobs. And It's a funny kind of matter because the subject of ancient Mesopotamia, which the, the whole culture existed side by side with ancient Egypt, not very far away, and everybody in the world knows all about ancient Egypt, but they don't know all about Mesopotamia. And it's a very fascinating thing, and lots of important claims on people's attention took place there. For example, um, writing almost certainly began in that part of the world, and it soon turned into a proper script where you could write languages down properly. And that was a momentous thing for mankind. And the most important thing about all that really is that the Sumerians and the Babylonians who are all long extinct, of course, and for millennia. They wrote all their messages really on pieces of clay by pressing signs into the surface of the clay. And you wouldn't think clay was such a wonderful writing medium because people associate it with messy things with kids or making pottery and getting it everywhere. And um, in fact, it was a special kind of excellent clay. And the upshot of it was that when they'd written on Um, on these tablets, written the messages down, spelled them out in their signs, pressed into the clay, and they last forever. So in the ground, there are many, many, many thousands of inscriptions um, which have come up from the ground, but untold numbers which must still be there. Because when people wrote these tablets, if they got buried accidentally or deliberately, um, whatever happened to them in the past, they got covered up and things, they're still there to be rescued and to be read, unless somebody deliberately destroyed them. So we have profusion of documents, and they're all about daily life and state life at the same time, because we have things to do with the court, um things to do with the army and diplomatic stuff and diplomatic marriages and politics and all that. And then we have things to do with the religion temples and the temple libraries and the rituals that the priests carried out, sometimes and regularly, sometimes once a year, things of that kind. And then we have private letters and contracts and business documents, people being rude to one another about their debts, and uh, why don't you answer my letter, and are you my brother or are you not my brother, and that sort of stuff. And then we have the other side of things. We have dictionaries, ancient dictionaries and ancient lists of cuneiform signs, which the scholars compiled. And then we have magic material and medicine and divination and all sorts of stuff. So the British Museum um, is a storehouse of this material because in the 19th century, when they first started the really big excavations, so you have a thing like a small mountain, and uh, which is um, generations of buildings and streets and so forth, laid on top of one another as one collapses or one falls, who is destroyed and other people come and they build on top and they build on top. So you end up with a sort of mountain of habitation. And in the 19th century, when they started, about 1850, they started digging in the Assy- what turned out to be the Assyrian capitals. They sometimes found very large numbers of documents. And because of the nature of the world then, the political division of the countries and who was in charge. The Turkish administration ruled in what later became Iraq. Of course, it wasn't Iraq then. And uh, the material was uh, divided and a lot of it came to London. So after many years of excavations, we ended up with, well, I don't know how many, um, and thirty or 140,000 documents, perhaps even more with little bits. Um, and then they cover 3,000 years of time. So it is the most wonderful resource, because all these documents were written for the time, for persons, for people around in their daily lives. And none of them was ever written, really, with the idea that strange people in museums, 5,000 years later, would be trying to read their words. And so we have all these things which are real from real life. And sometimes the messages are mundane and not so... Um, riveting to most people, but very often they are. You get thrown into a human um, dilemma or a human drama or all sorts of things happening, and people were worried in ancient times, and this is really important, about the same things as they are today. For example, dying young, not having children, about disease, warfare, drought, and all those horrible things. Uh, You can see that human beings were preoccupied with the same preoccupations as people ever since, and that they responded to them in a very comparable way. So as I see these people who survive in this mass of bits of clay with writing on, when we read the messages they come out as real people, and sometimes even like listening in on a telephone conversation when you have letters that go one way or the other or disputes that are settled in front of a magistrate. All these things open up a window and the upshot of it is that it is a miraculous matter that we have all this written material which gives us such a rounded and um, informative picture of the world all that time ago because the writing disappeared by about the first century AD, when obscurity was replaced by other writing, other religions, other nations, and so forth with the march of time, of course. And so it became under the ground and hidden, and it had to be dug up again and brought back to life. And that's the work that I and my colleagues do. We have all this treasure, and to somehow bring it into a form where people who are busy or not busy or interested or not interested can at least get some idea of all this stuff and how the human race is, I see it—is one species in the same kind of mess.
0: I think what's quite profound is that, like you said, I mean, my background is education. So I, I fully agree with you when, when you said that, you know, we all know about the ancient Greeks. We all know about the ancient Egyptians and we teach it in our schools. But here we have something older and yet we don't have that same knowledge and understanding coming through in in education, in our teaching in classrooms. Mm, And what you've got is something that is a language so very old, which kind of changes some of the narrative and the thinking I think about when we consider the, the, the field of the paranormal today and people's understanding of the field of the paranormal and their belief system. Here we have something so very old that kind of shows this connection with people who have, in some ways, many of the same beliefs and thoughts and ideas as as we do, but in in other ways different. And Mm. for many in the paranormal field, they kind of think of the birth of spiritualism and the Victorian ghost story and the beginnings of societies like the Society for Psychical Research is the beginning moment when the concept of ghosts and the afterlife really came to the fore. But here you have... The first examples of ghost stories. Yes. Um, images of ghosts being captured and spoken about and written about and recorded that shows just how prevalent this was as part of their as their society, as their culture. Yes. And that I think shifts something in that thinking process. And, and like I said, that beginning point is one that I think is so important to explore. And that's what you're doing.
1: Yes. Well, I, I quite agree with you. One crucial point is that people who write about ghosts in the modern world uh, seldom are in a position to distinguish between um, fraud and real things, and fiction and fact, and um, historical material and invention. The whole of the literature about ghosts is bedeviled by this kind of thing. So it's very difficult to sort anything out at all. And on top of that, most people, as you say, think it's, its roots the roots of the beliefs, that, or what you might call the paranormal, though I'm not sure about the word, are, are not so far back in time. But of course, if you look, um, there's vast amounts of information re- left by the ancient Greeks about ghosts and the traditions about ghosts. And in Latin, both languages furnish a very um, wide and um, revealing picture of how people thought about ghosts in the Greek and Roman world. And when you go back before that to the Mesopotamian, we have something which is about as far back as you can go in terms of writing and discover it. But the, the, the most important thing that occurred to me when I was writing this book and that came to me was that we have a, a slew of documents about the, the kind of people who, what ghosts are supposed to do. They're supposed to stay in the underworld. They're not supposed to come back. You're not supposed to be a, a troublesome person after you're dead. And what kind of people did come back and why and what you can do about it and how you banish them and what it means if you see them and rituals to get rid of them, some simple, some complex, and also how to bring them up sometimes if you want to ask a question about the future. All those aspects of human um, interaction with the ghostly world are covered in cuneiform writing. So the thing is, you can put ghosts right on the map of Mesopotamia, right on the map before any of the other traditions that we know about. So this is a kind of historical flag stuck in the ground saying, this is as far back as we can go. But there's more to it than that. And the the issue devolves out of your point about the paranormal, because normal and paranormal are of course modern terms and they are to some extent critical and cold and rather imprecise because there's nobody I know who can define for a minute what the word normal means. It's a very difficult conundrum. But the point about ghosts is this. There was a basic belief that the dead went down to the underworld, and that's where they were. And for a whole range of possible reasons, individuals came back in order to annoy the living. So the wide range of different inscriptions in cuneiform from Mesopotamia, which bear on this issue, established for certain—at least in my mind, and I wrote about it um, hopefully convincingly—that for the ancient Mesopotamia person, ghosts were part of daily life. And this, I think, is very significant, because in the modern world, people either believe in ghosts or they don't believe in ghosts, or they just don't know. There are three. There are three categories of modern response to ghosts. And um, in Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, before the time of Jesus, back 2000 BC, that kind of time, there was no issue about whether somebody believed in ghosts or didn't. And if someone said to their their neighbour, "I saw my auntie yesterday and w- w- walking down the." Corridor into the bedroom, I couldn't believe my eyes. And the the neighbor didn't say, Oh, come on, don't tell me you believe in ghosts. I mean, if you could say, Woman of your age, that's ridiculous. There was never any such conversation because everybody knew that ghosts were part of daily life. And I think this is a very significant matter, which has not been clarified in earlier writing about the subject because they never started. From this perspective. And if you make the assumption, which I strongly do, that this is true, that for everybody involved, ghosts weren't, were absolutely normal, in other words, they weren't paranormal, you have to explain the difference or what happened between what I consider to be the default position which is that human beings do believe in ghosts and then what happened to it so the default position is ghosts live in the world that we know and that's part of it and you have to put up with it and deal with it that's the that's the basic position and then what happened is that you have in the world you have the advent of religion and especially monotheistic religion with one god this whole conception that There's only one God means that my God is the real one and yours isn't, and it's one of the things which has fermented the worst kind of religious warfare. This kind of nonsense, that issue of the religious input plus the scientific input, meant that the what I would call the natural attitude towards this in Western society and especially in complex urban societies, on the whole, goes under the radar people don't talk about it, because everybody else they think will laugh at them and mock them. So the, the, the pressure of these other things, people in clerical garb and people in white coats, on the whole, had had the effect of suppressing this matter. But there are many, many parts of the world you can go to where the same issue exists. You go into, shall we say, a, a small village miles from anywhere, In country X, it doesn't matter which, and you sit down under a tree and speak to a grandmother. Now, I'm interested, do you believe in ghosts? This grandmother will say to you, what kind of question is that? Do you want to hear about all the ghosts I've seen? And you might be there for two days, because people in many parts of the world still preserve what I regard to be as the kind of natural human attitude towards the whole matter. Now this is nothing to do with whether ghosts exist or not technically, or whether people see them or not technically. Because all that interests me is what the historical um, view in writing has been by human beings about the matter of ghosts. That is the most important thing to me. And all the other side issues, whether you can prove things, whether you can't, and all that, I'm not very interested in it because I I don't think it's very helpful. And the other thing is when you write a book about ghosts, if you ever do this, you meet a lot of people who, when they know this um t- talk to you about it and ask questions about it and i've met a lot of people who have told me that they they saw a ghost when they were a kid or their auntie told them they saw a ghost and, and there's, there's absolutely no reason on all other sides to do with this person to believe for a moment that they are deluded or that they are making up or lying Because some people have told me things that happen to them which make the hair stand up on the back of your neck just as much as walking through the British Museum galleries. Sometimes very extraordinary things. And people who, for example, a lady of about 75 told me something that happened in her family when she was a teenager. She'd never talked about it since, but she went to my lecture and she came up afterwards and said, I think I ought to tell you this. I've never told anybody else. And the way she was talking about it, I could quite believe. never told anybody else and certainly not a thing at dinner parties or anything. And she told me this story, which is very compelling. And I couldn't believe for a moment that the right explanation was that she was deluded, she thought she saw, but she didn't. It was a trick of the light. It was all this kind of stuff that people say. So I, I feel that the overwhelming testimony in writing and in tradition um, for this as a feature of the universe is so strong that I'm not in the position to say that it's nonsense, and I'm very sympathetic to it. And When I wrote the first ghost book, I just wanted to g- get, as I said, the flag pointed that ghosts were not invented in Germany in the 16th century AD, but they were a very, very ancient thing that go back to the be- beginnings that we can see. And therefore, they need to be considered as a human phenomenon, not as a German social matter or an English social matter or something to do with the victoria. It's a basic human matter, which I think goes back to the beginning of the species. even.
0: I think what you just said echoes precisely what I think. Um, that they, you know just that those words are human matter this is this is us this is this is who we are and it's the evolution of that thought process and yes. the things that stay with us and I think they're important things to discuss and to know about and you know I completely echo everything you just said I think it's something that should be known and I, and again I come back to what I said earlier this is where you've got something that tilts some of that thinking on its head I think and takes us right back to some of these very earliest examples. And from there, we can then start building up this picture of, well, what do we learn over time about cultures and society and, and us as people yes. in terms of our belief systems around death, dying, the soul and the afterlife? What, what does that tell us about us as human beings? The fact that we're also interested in talking about these things.
1: Yes, uh, that is exactly right. One of the wonderful things about the Mesopotamians is they didn't have a hell they didn't have the idea that the, what you did in life was subject to weighing and, and balancing and they decide whether you go up or down or stay in the middle. There was none of that panky-panky which has caused endless misery in the world, that idea. It's obscene, in my opinion. And, and the, the Babylonians, the, whatever troubles they had, they never had that trouble. So they're very matter of fact about it all. And I think m- myself that um, if you if you establish an, an agreement, that, or at least a working hypothesis that the ascription to the conception that when people die, something survives of them, of their body, of, of their personality, and it goes down or it goes up. If you subscribe to that basic idea, then it becomes automatically a human matter. I mean, after all, all clergymen who comfort the dead, they comfort the, the mourners for the dead, they say that your spirit of your uncle has gone up to heaven, or they speak quite blithely about an invisible part of a human being which disappears from the body when the body is dead. And they're quite quite merrily talking about this spirit and what happens to it and all the rest of it. Well, in my opinion, there's no difference between a clergyman's description of a spirit of a dead person going to where it should go and a ghost. The only absolutely clear difference between the two conceptions is that ghosts are sometimes visible. So my thesis is that even the church, and I don't mean just one church, I mean even religious institutions, which all hold, at least almost all of them, hold the idea that something survives after death of a person, that is no different from the principle of the ghost, except that you don't see them normally. So if you're prepared to consider things in this global way, then you end up with a conclusion perhaps that maybe some people, that's more sensitive than others more alert, more whatever it might be, are more inclined to see these things than other people who don't because of their nature. For example, there are many people who are colorblind, and that doesn't mean that Van Gogh or Rubens or somebody who saw these colours was making it up or pretending that they could see colours. It's just that the receptors in people's brains are different. So that's the same with um, being able to sing in key and being tone deaf. There's some kind of variation there. So who knows? But the situation might not be that the real point here is that some people see them and some don't, which is a very different matter from uh, uh, saying they they don't exist or they do exist.
0: So in terms of um, your book and some of the content that you, you cover and you discuss so brilliantly, what would you say um, – people can really discover and learn from this, this civilization in terms of what they believed about death, the afterlife, the soul, burial practices. What is it that these tablets really reveal as to what, what was their core belief systems around those things?
1: Well, I think the, um, the main principles are, of course, that um, the dead were buried. Of course, that's not always the case. Um, and it's certainly not always the case around the world, but it's by far the default position that the the dead are put underground as soon as possible for obvious reasons. And because of this, because that goes back to the very beginning of the species, the conception is that wherever, whoever's left of your famous Uncle Henry. That Uncle Henry's body is under the ground and being eaten by weevils, but the bit that made Uncle Henry Uncle Henry is also down there, and that the place where these um, ethereal representations of human beings go to have the register called and do what they have to do in the underworld is under the world. And I, I don't know, I couldn't say whether there are or are not societies. Where they thought the dead went up instead of down. But it's quite helpful in this sort of area to consider what, what people call the default position. And I would say that the idea that the underworld or wherever the bits went, the default view of that was it was downward. So And there are many parts of the world where people are buried very quickly, even today. That was certainly the rule in Mesopotamia because it was hot. And of course, there's a very strong reason to get on with it. And um, religions like Islam and Judaism, who who have their roots in the same part of the world, and in fact live in the same part of the world, um, always bury their dead very promptly in the same kind of way. So it's a practical thing which, in, in later times, becomes a religious duty, and it's it's hedged about with religious explanation and religious tradition. But the basic reason is jolly obvious, and Sometimes people are buried with things, and um, in fact, in the ancient times, people almost always were buried with things because they um, literally believed that whatever survived of Uncle Henry would be going somewhere where he might need a sword and a ploughshare and uh, a chess set, and they put them in the grave for him to take on his journey. Who knows where? So. Archaeology in general shows that the dead are buried with things, and sometimes when um, the population is very impoverished, there might be a few beads or this and that, um, but they can't spare real things and uh, valuable things for such a purpose. And then you have things like Tutankhamun's tomb, where there were three rooms full of gold and, and all the rest of it. But the principle is the same, that the dead person will be going somewhere where they will need material. Now, in the modern world, there are plenty of cases where this goes on, but on the whole, certainly in the Western world, people are not usually buried with objects. And if they are, it is sometimes um, something of which they were very fond um, and people thought they could hardly be without them or a piece of jewellery or something of the kind which nobody would want to wear afterwards because it was, I don't know what. But I mean, you do find that happening, but not specifically because they will be needed in the world to come. So there's been some primary shift in the vision of what happens to the invisible part of a person. The agreement is that it leaves the body and it goes somewhere, and the presumption is that it's happy and and, and enjoys life there, but the, the literal giving people things to take with on the whole has been supplanted in more modern times by um, words and, and, and prayers and things and not actually putting in their favourite wheelbarrow or um, a sports car or something. There are actually, of course, parts of the world where there are special ceremonies for the dead where exactly that kind of thing happens, sometimes made of plaster or wood. or But there are special cases. But in general, perhaps it's fair to generalise, certainly in in Europe and in America, people don't, on the whole, bury things with their dead. But the, the 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 idea of the of the spirit leaving the body and going somewhere is it what I would call it a universal principle. And also the idea that if the if they're not happy, they come back. Now it's very clear that this is true in Mesopotamia. but the same tradition occurs quite often in the modern world, where, for example, the there is a belief that. When you have, I don't know, a public house in Yorkshire where they sometimes see a girl with blonde hair hanging around the stables at 11 o'clock at night, and it's supposed to be a girl who was trampled to death by a racehorse in 1643, and sometimes she comes back and everybody knows who she is. There are stories like that all over the place, and it's not, neither here nor there that there's any truth. Or the historical truth in them, it doesn't make any difference. The principle is something shared with antiquity that, in cases of violent death or many other sorts of things like that, it was generally believed that the tr- troublesome spectre of the dead person would hang about where it happened, as it were, visiting the scene of the crime. And th- this is a shared thing in many cultures, this idea. And it's one of the things which the, this the study of the ancient Babylonian things brings out forcibly that people go back to their old stomping grounds, and they don't, you know, get on the train and go abroad. They um, they hang about where they used to live and where the great grandchildren are and uh, and all that kind of thing. So I think you've got you. The way I see it is that the, the, the stronger um, historical religions, which have very many traditions and beliefs details um, as their apparatus and their trappings overlay the simple thing about burial and why people are buried and what they think happens to the person inside, which is at root very similar with all sorts of other stuff so that outwardly they look different and they ring in a different tune. But I don't see it that way. I think the essence of it is all to do with a universal matter, and it, it's rather endearing, in, in a sense, if you if you wear a white coat and look at this stuff down a sympathetic microscope as being the human behaviour. If I were from another planet and um, forced to study death, burial, and and traditions in the world, and only had a week to write a big article about it, I think I would I would find it very endearing that um, the struggle and the um, you know, it's it's all understandable. It's all it's, it, essentially extremely human and and normal. <laughs> it seems to me. So I'm not sure about the paranormal. But what what that really means? Um, it's it's very confusing. Once I um gave a lecture in the Psychic Society that you mentioned before, as having they I mean, have a marvelous library and all sorts of material there. And when I started writing this book. I went and gave a talk, and my the the, the gist of my argument was that ghosts are recorded and discussed over such a wide period of history and such a wide period of geography that the testimony is overwhelming, and that I didn't really see how anybody. And who thought they were a scientist, could possibly deny that this was something to be reckoned with. And I thought it was something to be reckoned with, and this and this and this talking like that about it. And when I was finished, um, the chairman stood up and said, well, thank you very much for the um, lecture. It's was very interesting. He said, of course, um, there was no need for you to argue so forcibly about, um, about the existence of ghosts um, in this room because we've all seen lots of them and we are entirely in agreement with you. <laughs>
0: Preaching to the to the converted
1: <laughs> in a classic way, and I thought that was marvelous. I I really thought it was marvelous. So I mean, there are ghosts in the British Museum, and lots of people have seen them. I've never seen them. It's jolly annoying to me. And I've always wanted to see one, and I think, quite frankly, I deserve it now, having stood up for them and um written about them. I think it's about time some ghost, not necessarily a Babylonian, it could be quite different sort of ghost, might come and um, tap me on the shoulder one night and said. Um, well, we like your book. We read it. Um, good man or or something frightening. It would be lovely.
0: That would be incredible, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> the trouble is nobody would believe me. See, at the moment I I skirt around these issues and when I've been to literary festivals and talked about this book from lots of different angles, and usually someone says, I have to ask you this, do you believe in ghosts? And um I always answer by saying, Well, I know a lot of people who do or something like that, and not committing myself. But I, I, I find that it's very difficult to, for me, having dipped into this subject. I mean, it's a lifetime and more of reading, because there's so much uh, extraordinary stuff. And it's not just um, novels and Hollywood rubbish. But um, anthropologists, for example, who travel in lots of different places, missionaries and, and scholars who were posted in parts of the world and lived there for years and wrote dictionaries and wrote about customs and marriage customs and wrote all those things. And they didn't write about them as imperialist um, monsters. They wrote about of sympathy with them because they lived there and they saw their lives and they learned their languages. And sometimes for the first time ever they gave them an alphabet to write down their own scriptures or the Christian scriptures. I mean, all that and those sorts of people. Very often, in the anthropological works, have a chapter on on this kind of thing. And um, and I talk to so many different sorts of people that really I find it very difficult to be anything other than sympathetic to the whole idea. Well,
0: I think it's normalising the discussion, and I think it's something that you touched upon already. Um, here we have examples historically where talking about death and dying and what lay beyond was was normal part of everyday life. And it's something that modern society, I think, tries to acknowledge it, but it's not necessarily spoken about as openly. And, you know, there may be reasons for that, fear of what comes next or the introduction of science and the fact that we do try and stop things from happening, but it's it's an inevitability. And so therefore it is part of who we are, it's part of our culture, it's part of our experiences. And, you know, I, I think there's something that we can learn about trying to normalize that discussion again and seeing what earlier civilizations history tells us about treating the dead, treating this subject and the belief systems around ghosts, dying, death, burial, and all of these other things and and how we uh, treat the dead.
1: But you know, um, there is some benefit accrued um from a comparative. Historical view, because in Greek there are um, there is evidence for people who didn't believe in ghosts there, because you know they were more modern in many ways and um, no more intelligent, but their intellectual um, clarity was different from the Babylonian world and. Um, There are uh, Greeks, uh, many lots of evidence for doubt or skepticism about ghosts. And then, as you go on through history, it becomes more articulate. And of course, as I say, with with modern religion and modern science, it it becomes something um, that people don't really come out with. They don't. They don't talk about it. It's, It's a very odd matter. So, what I think what we really need is to have a. What would be really good would be to get. A, a collection made of um, of testimony, not not um, rubbishy things. I mean, it's, it's quite easy to distinguish between rubbish and reality. And people say, "Well, you know, what you're going to do?" Someone says this. Do you believe them or not? But if you're going to do it, it's up to you to exercise a kind of discretion. But for examples, um, I've heard from two people that if ever you want to talk to someone who's ever who's seen ghosts and never talks about it then you should talk to nurses who work in wards at night. Because people who work in the night wards, um, if you ask them, get them in the right mode and ask them about ghosts, um, they will tell you that they see people walking through the wall, looking for the drug cupboard and um, looking out of the window. and, And none of them bats an eyelid. Because lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people have died in those wards, lots of people have died in those wards, and it's not that you have credulous nurses who who, who get really nervous in case something happens. Um, the, the, the person I talked to, um, his mum was a nurse, and and he said, you know, if you want to go around and have a, a cup of tea with her, you'll you'll be staggered because that she and her colleagues live in a world where the issue whether they believe in ghosts is neither here nor there. And I've heard similar things like that from a wide range of different sorts of people. And it's a bit hard to believe that they're all deluded or they're all making it up. Because when you have someone who's matter-of-fact not noisy and not all that keen on talking about it, that gives you an idea. Of, of it being a sensible point to ask some questions about it
0: absolutely and again coming back to this idea that it's not something that we're only experiencing now this seems to be this very much shared historical sen- you know feeling and belief system so again it's worth discussing it's worth looking at and exploring you know this journey and 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 the experiences that people have had in all kinds of cultures all around the world yes since the very beginning We are about to celebrate hitting our 100th episode of Haunted History Chronicles on the last Friday of April 2023. To say thank you, for the months of May, June and July, there are going to be daily paranormal podcasts available to enjoy on all tiers over on Patreon, as well as the usual additional items available over there. Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content, For as little as £1, you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, and more, and know that you're contributing and helping the podcast to put out another 100 episodes. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website, along with other simple and great ways to support the podcast directly. It's all truly very much appreciated. And now, let's head back to the podcast.
1: One thing that struck me about the book, about this book, um, following your earlier question, is if you have an individual who, for example, had an experience which was very traumatic to do with this matter, and when they had it, nobody believed them, and so they never told anybody else again, and they buried it in the back of their mind, and then they thought, well, maybe I didn't really, and maybe I didn't know really, that sort of. This is not an uncommon matter, and I think if somebody has a lurking Thing in their subconscious or conscious mind about what what actually it was, what happened, how real it was, and everything. The, um, you don't have to read this book from beginning to end, but when you realise th- that this is something which has gone on since the beginning of time among Homo sapiens, that it, I think it's rather encouraging <laughs> that you don't necessarily have to doubt yourself entirely, and so. I mean, I don't believe I don't believe in um, all the possible things that people can suggest to, to, to rule out when someone says what happened what they saw. there's about thirty things, you know trick of the light and all that. You can think oh they were drunk or they were starving or they were tired or they had a hell of a day, or you know all that stuff. It's just nonsense because when people see these things, it's not an impact like squinting through a. Cracked lens and wondering what it is it? Something which affects them very powerfully. I mean that that in itself is something significant. That it's not something you just rush aside and uh, don't think twice about it. People who've had these experiences never really forget them, and I think they they stay with them. So I don't know who one could recruit to to take any kind of investigation further because scientists, for example, um, don't like the subject because with with science you have to have something that you can demonstrate and you can demonstrate repeatedly. You have to have a a principle that you can prove by experiment whenever you want to. It's always the same result. You can never do that with ghosts. You couldn't do that. So it's not susceptible to that sort of proof. And it's always going to be testimony. And the trouble is with of course, in the nineteenth century and later, people took photographs and and what have you. And I don't know whether every single one was forged, but loads and loads of them were. And it's like photographs of pixies in the garden and God knows what else. They're all and they muddied the water dreadfully for people who are really interested to investigate this matter. You know, backwards and forwards and sideways because you bump into all this rubbish and um, that is a problem but um, anyone who is interested in the historical sources there's some good books now about about the belief in ghosts in Greece and in Rome with lots of texts translated and um, so you can read what the Greeks thought about it and, and also there are other people in the middle ages who didn't know whether the people really saw ghosts they start to discuss did they really see a ghost or Was it in the imagination and that kind of thing so you can see how the default position evolves into various phases until you get the situation which prevails in the modern world
0: and and i think it's more than that i think it's this i think it's this kind of understanding of some of the things that we again think and believe are only things that have only really happened in say the last few hundred years again these are practices that are much much older i mean i'm thinking in particular of you know the chapter where you're talking about the art of necromancy communicating with the dead you know we we think of seance tables and you know parlors in in polite sitting rooms with mediums and communing with dead through through the dead through table tipping and all of these other victorian type things But actually, again, divination, communication with the dead, these are practices that are so much, much older. And, you know, again, speaking to what you were just saying about science, trying to ridicule spiritualism and the things that happened during that period because of the number of of people that were faking it and and, um, sensationalizing it and all of the other things that we know about. But actually, the root of what they were doing—these are something again that are part of who we are culturally, going much, much, much further back.
1: Yes, and also the people who who did that table tapping thing often were looking for comfort as much as anything else, and um, were thinking that the dead were be on the veil and you could you could communicate with them and all that sort of thing. Yes, it, it's true what you say. It's it's a very big subject, and um. I thought uh, when I wrote this book that what I would do is get a telling description of summing up the belief of uh, such and such a place on the subject of ghosts, say like from twenty different cultures, if I could find them, and um, just at the back of the book, you know, so, so that you have the uh, you could see how the, the tapestry of of unfolding stuff where what's in common between the different traditions is very much stronger than the differences. And this, I think, is one of the driving reasons why the study of antiquity, there are two reasons why the study of antiquity is terrifically important, because the, 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 the similarities between the races of, of the human world and what they've done throughout their history, and the way they've dealt with the great struggle of existence, the parallels between them, the similarities, are greater than the differences. There's all sorts of clothes and, and religious ideas and customs and this and that, but the Homo sapiens inside is um, one species. And what what is in common between people is much more important, especially in a time when the world is so fragmented. It's, just, it's a kind of status of of investigation which I think is on a high level, and it's compounded by the illusion uh, common among politicians uh, who think that um, we are the most advanced stage of, of of the human race now at this very moment, especially in terms of them. Because they're the rulers, so that the human race has gone; to never been higher, and they are the highest of the top. And this is a massive, massive illusion. Because the more you know about history and ancient history, the more it is absolutely impossible to demonstrate that any kind of evolution or any kind of improvement has ever been made in the historical period. People are just the same as ever, and politicians are often um, hypocritical liars, monsters and savage exploiters of everybody else now as they always have been, and they are not at the forefront of evolution. So my idea is that as for evolution of human psyche, it's either stop or reverse, but it certainly isn't progress. And it is quite humbling in a way. If you work with ancient inscriptions of people who've been dead for two thousand or three thousand years, and, and listen in on their voices, that there's enough there to convince me that if one met these people um, in the newsagents when you were buying a bar of chocolate, they might look very different and talk a funny language, but um, you would know at once that um, that you were, so to speak, brothers under the under the garb. And I think that the more understanding is of phenomena, which are human phenomena, the less damage that can be done by the divisive things like the, the, the religions that engender war and all the other things that engender strife, all those things, they will diminish. It's the only way they'll be made to diminish.
0: And again, one of the, the aspects that I think is is really fascinating that you explore in the book is this sense of magic in ritual, when dealing with say malevolent spirits, you know, demons, all words that again have become something of different meaning, I think, because of religion. But you explore that, and again, you're you're taking us back to what this was in ancient Mesopotamia, and yes, how they dealt with it. And again, it's kind of normalising. Mm. Something that has become something very different and a little bit more, more darker because of that religious undertone to it, you know.
1: Maybe, but don't forget, see, they, they didn't have the devil. No, this is a later invention of a well known church. and um, they didn't have the devil, but there were lots of demons and devils, and um, we know about some of them, their character, and some of them we don't know much about them, um, and they, um wrought malice on the human race consistently. and Ghosts sometimes did if they were nasty ghosts, but not always. But demons and devils, they were, and they had to be driven out with magic, ritual, and incantation. And the, the dreadful thing about them was you couldn't kill them. They were immortal. So if you were a good practitioner, you knew your magic, you knew about the good exorcistic spells, and there was a client who had this trouble with a ghost, you could go around there and perhaps you'd fasted for 12 hours before, wore clean linen or something and went around there and confronted this thing with a brazier with coals and incense and spells and... Um, sometimes with figurines and uh, all that kind of stuff and burying them in the ground. And with this figurine, I bury you, you go down to the underworld and that sort of thing. Um, very powerful stuff and real because they did this. See, this is the other thing. And you can see there's a distinction between simple devices and expensive devices and cheap amulets and expensive amulets, and which makes a kind of lot of sense. It's very fascinating. I'd like to meet one of these guys. I've got lots of questions, but
0: same here. I mean, it really is truly um, something that I think you could spend a lifetime immersing, exploring, and asking questions and asking more questions because it is so intriguing and interesting.
1: Well, and I've spent my lifetime so far. Um, yeah. So, uh, it's like with that time when someone said to Woody Allen, "Mr. Allen, do you think you'll live on in, after your death?" in no, do you think you'll live on in your after your death in your in your books and films? And Woody Allen said, yeah, but I'd rather live on in my apartment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it is just, I mean, just the opportunity to to look at what it tells you and to be able to see it and to physically see an image. I mean, one of the things that, again, I think is just hairs on the back of your neck moment is the very first example of an of an image of a ghost captured on one of these tablets. I mean...
1: Yeah, that is something. It's else.
0: profound. It's really quite profound. And what that then tells us about ghosts and and all of these other things. I mean, it's I mean, it's incredible. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about that one particular image?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that is something. It's it's written in about 500 BC or something, and it it belonged to an exorcist who was a specialist in getting rid of ghosts, and. What they did is, as I mentioned briefly before, is sometimes they made a figure of the ghost or or whatever, and buried it with stuff that you would need, you know, sandwich box and comb and a radio and stuff like that, so to speak. And they would bury the figurine, and, and that off it would go to the netherworld. So the mechanism there is clear. But in this particular tablet, there's a drawing of the ghost and of a woman. And so there's writing, and then there's a ruling across the clay tablet. Then there's an empty space, and underneath that, there's another ruling with more writing. And in this space, is drawn with a very delicate point, a picture of the ghost and of a woman. And it's clear from the ritual that this is what happens, that in this case, the exorcist... I mean, what must have happened, literally, is that there's a there's a troublesome ghost in the family.
0: That's obvious.
1: So they try this, they try that, and then they call in a... A proper practitioner. And I think this is how it must have worked, a bit like Sherlock Holmes. So the exorcist would say, okay, well, the first thing we have to do is to work out who this ghost is. Who might it be? And by interrogation, you can find out what time of day and whether, whether, whether anybody actually saw it or, you know, and perhaps by analysis and by behavior, it will become clear that it was, for example, this great uncle Henry. So, who's supposed to be in the underworld and been there for quite a long time. But the thing about great Uncle Henry that everybody knew was that he always had to have a female partner. And so by discussion with the exorcist, he would establish this. So the conclusion would be that what we do is we make a little model of Uncle Henry, and we make a model of a rather dishy lady. And what we do is we Bury them in a hole at sunset with various bits and pieces, and she will take him down to the underworld and they will live happily ever after. This is the proceeding. And it might make you smile to think they could believe this kind of stuff, but actually it's it's not just a, a pretend belief. This was the analysis. He's back because of of this matter. So we'll give him someone like himself, and they make these and the drawings are very, very beautifully done. The woman has a straight back. She's striding forward with a close-fitting cap and she's holding in her right hand a piece of rope and behind her is a tall skinny bloke with a long beard, straggly looking fellow who has his hands stretched out in front of him tied together with the other end of the rope. So this is the most staggering drawing because this is it. She is leading him off to the underworld. And you have to make the the two images in this relationship tied like that so she will take him off to the underworld and stay there. And the drawing is not just like a child's you know, block caricature or something. It's very beautifully done. And both of the figures, um, it's very difficult to see until you see it. I mean, I, I had this tablet among my tablets to work on, because I went through the whole collection looking for ghost literature. And I had this tablet because the other side is full of writing and very clear. So I knew it was an important source. And it was only when I got down to it and looked at it properly under the lamp, I suddenly saw these drawings. It was electrifying. So what we actually have is a, a drawing of a ghost by a person for a practical, realistic purpose. And I'm rather gratified to say that, um, This tablet with this ghost is in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's oldest ghost picture. I'm rather proud of it because you wouldn't expect a cuneiform tablet to be in that august volume, but lo and behold, it is. And it's absolutely fantastic thing.
0: And it's I mean it's fantastic in itself as a as an as an artifact, but again, it's the association with something from before you know real people real people and um the person who who, who put that image there yeah. but also the people it was connected with who who had this need for it who had this belief in it mm. and it's just making those connections that i just think are the really profound thing mm. um because thought- it is it's connecting with our past
1: it is connected when their past, And also, there's another point that I think if you've got a professional in to do that, it's probably quite pricey, you know. I mean, they didn't have bank accounts and coinage, but uh, there was a silver base to economy and all sorts of things could be arranged. But I think if you've got someone to come in and do the whole lot, you know, purify the house and this, this and this, probably set you back quite a lot. So you wouldn't do it lightly. And I think the, con- the conclusion must be that it will be done when the ghost was really a pain in the neck, not just, um, you know, make you jump. But because also when they get really cross, if they're really fed up and they don't get their offerings and things, they start making people ill and uh, they can be really, really malicious. So I think this had got to the stage where somebody in the family said, look, OK, this is enough. Um, get the guy in. I'll pay for it.
0: <laughs> Something like that. I think it highlights the the real need, the real urgency for it, and and the importance of it, the significance of it. And again, I think that comes back to what we've been saying throughout. This was something so rooted in their in their belief system that money wasn't a, a factor here. It was it was a need for it, and therefore it was done. And again, what does that reveal? What does that say that it was just so much part of of experience, everyday life? It was. It wasn't
1: something shied away and ignored, or or that some people really believed in, and others thought they were daft. I mean, that is the most important thing because you can you can state I can state that knowing that ghosts exist and they could be troublesome was familiar to uh, the boot boy and the king in the palace and everybody in between. It was one of the things that everybody took for granted. I think it's such an important matter that it's worth stressing again, and. You know, I, I read all these texts, and there was nothing that did in any way make me doubt or contradict this idea that it was part of their the way they saw the world and the way they saw life. And so, in other words, for them, it was normal as opposed to paranormal.
0: And again, all these other things that we've been talking about, communicating with the with the dead, was something normal. It was something that people. It wasn't laughed at. You know, these were these were experiences, they were, they were understood uh, yes. in a way that I think has been lost. And again, it's it's something that I think when we look back at history, if we look back at it with less critical thinking and and oh we're so much more evolved now. If we if we take that out, we mm-hmm. can actually learn so much more if we're like you've mentioned a bit more sympathetic and understanding yes, to I see agree. these commonalities.
1: I agree with that, and also, you know, this bringing bringing the dead up like that. It wasn't just um, the Mesopotamians who did it. I mean, remember in the Bible, when King Saul um, was about to um, succumb to the Philistines, and he went to this um, woman who lived on uh, the Eindor on the mountain to call up the dead prophet Samuel, and she she does she calls him up, and he comes up and talks to the king. I mean, that was necromancy pure and simple, and. King Saul must have lived in about 1000 BC, something like that. So um, you, you have there another window on the perfectly normal nature of the undertaking, because Saul didn't like magicians and wizards and things. He had them driven out of the country. But when he was in, a, in the extremis, um he asked his people where, where, "Where can? where's that woman who does it, and they took him there and he called up the prophet. The prophet came up from the underworld, and he says to the king, um, it's an amazing story. I, I wrote about it in this book. I just thought it was such an amazing description. that Samuel, the dead prophet, comes up and says, well, why have you disturbed me? <laughs> and it's just incredible. I, I, it's like something in Shakespeare it has got everything in it. And um, it's, what is interesting, I spent about a week reading what Christian, Arab, um, Muslim, and Jewish theologians had to say about this business. And they all couldn't bear the fact that it was described in the Bible that God's anointed called up one of God's prophets from the grave by necromantic ritual. So there's all sorts of second guessing and and excuses and maybe this and maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. But when you read the text, especially if you read it side by side with the Mesopotamian things, it shows you the prevailing Understanding of how things were, and in Mesopotamia, nobody outlawed it. And Saul tried to outlaw it, but when it came from it, he still did it. So that is a kind of massive monument of reality about what was going on. It's not written there to perplex theologians or anything like that, and um. It, it, the, the, the writing of it is so convincing. It is astonishing, that passage. It's, it, I, I can't believe how amazing it is, especially when the prophet asks him what it's like. He was on watching something on television and the doorbell rang. And he used to get off the sofa and he goes all the way upstairs. And says, what the hell do you want? It's like that. It's just amazing. Just amazing.
0: Honestly, the book is just truly incredible. I mean, it's so insightful on so many different levels. Just to understand more about the belief systems around burial practices, death, dying, and the soul, the afterlife. As we've mentioned, just this intriguing, fascinating look at a culture that was is so old, but yet has so much still to tell us. I think today. And then to tie that in with this exploration of ghosts and the afterlife is just it's such an important, like you mentioned, it's the it's the kind of the, like you said, it's the flag, the pin point going in the map type thing. Mm. Here's a starting point that we can look at and see, see this journey for what it is. And I really do think it, it it's something that if people read will shift a lot of people's thinking because it does change the narrative and so it's a book i very much recommend and if people get the chance to to visit the british museum to see some of these in person even better really
1: exactly well said
0: thank you so much for your time for your time this evening it's honestly been incredible. I could pick your brains, I think, for 10 years and I probably wouldn't scratch the surface in terms of what you know.
1: <laughs> you're very kind. No, but it's it's, it's a marvellous subject and you're it's a pleasure to talk to you about it. So be well. Thank Take you care.
0: so much. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.